As you can see this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully you all have the outlines that I've made available for what we're covering this morning. And it says Philippians 3, 1 through 16. Uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to deal with Philippians 3, 1 through 16 in the manner in which I might normally deal with, with a passage like this. And, uh, we're talking a month of sermons, <laughs> probably, usually, but... Uh, I think that uh, what I'm going to do is uh, take us through the text and highlight some important things from the text. All of everything that Paul says here is going to factor in, of course, into what I'm going to be saying this morning, but we're going to highlight certain key things from the text um, in keeping with the theme of uh, experiencing Christ's resurrection power. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 through verse 16, and then as always... Uh, we will call upon the Lord for the filling of his Holy Spirit and the wisdom to understand the text as we should. Paul begins uh, in Philippians 3.1 with these words, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Of course, he's using the word dogs as a as he's name-calling here. You remember Jesus called the Pharisees a bunch of snakes? It's in that vein, right? Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, which is a dig at the Judaizers that we've talked about in previous weeks that were following Paul around and trying to undo his gospel teaching, saying that basically you had to be a Jew to be a Christian, and they were teaching a kind of work salvation and, of course, they were referring to themselves or were referred to as the circumcision because they were emphasizing that. And it also harkens back to the Old Testament in the way they would call unbelievers or godless people the uncircumcised. Remember, David said that about Goliath, that uncircumcised Philistine, you know, challenges the Lord and so forth. So their way of calling themselves the circumcision and therefore sort of referring to Gentile believers who hadn't been circumcised as the uncircumcised had Old Testament insulting kind of vibes to it. So what's Paul do? He calls them the mutilation. <laughs> uh, uh, and then he says this, for we are the circumcision, speaking of himself as a Jew, but also his fellow believers, whether they be Jew or Gentile. It's a way of saying we're the real circumcision. In other words, we're the real people of God. We're the real spiritual people. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And now he's going to take some more digs at some of these Judaizers, right? Um, you think you're a Jew? I'll tell you what a real Jew is, right? <laughs> and, uh, but, but for polemical purposes, as we'll see. He's not trying to brag. He's trying to make a point that they shouldn't brag. That they shouldn't take such pride in these things. Because he's going to say it's like rubbish to him, like dung to him. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he said, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now we know from Paul's teaching elsewhere that nobody can really keep the law. We saw that last week, remember. And he, he teaches that no one can actually keep the law. So what does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about the way the Pharisees viewed it, right? I could meet the Pharisaic standard. I could fool people as well as they could into thinking that I was a righteous person in accordance with the law. Because remember, they, they changed the requirements of the law to make it easier to keep. And then they could claim they kept it. He was good at that game. And it made him real popular. I mean, not just anybody could have gone and got letters to drag people from Damascus, right, and bring them back and kill them and put them in jail. And he was well known, at least. Some people think he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. If not, he was certainly a prominent Jew, well known to them and entrusted by them with a lot of authority. He was a, he was a big wig. Very prominent. What he's saying here is true about his past. And then he says this, but what things were gained to me, in that world, all those things were gained to him. But he says, what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, that's what his previous life had been about, right? Which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained, or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And now let us pray so that we can learn what that mind is. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your son Jesus that you gave him to be the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins. And that as uh, our departed brother Paul has alluded to in this passage, uh, he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that you put on him our sins and that we have a righteousness now that is not our own, a righteousness which comes from you by faith that it is credited to us, the righteousness of Christ, counted as our own through faith in what he did for us and living a sinless life, dying as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and rising from the dead and then ascending to your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us who trust in him. Thank you for all that you've done for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray today that you would 
Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might understand what it is that you inspired Paul to communicate to us. Help us to come away with what you'd have us to learn today to make us more like Christ, better witnesses for him. I pray this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. When Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, he began it with an emphasis upon his own calling to preach the gospel. And he said something very crucial to our study today there about how important the power of the resurrection really is. He said in the opening of Romans, beginning in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the whole, uh, spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And as you hear Paul's emphasis there upon how Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with, with power by the resurrection from the dead. Paul teaches us that Jesus' resurrection was a demonstration of the life-giving power of God. And this demonstration of power proved that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And that's what we're celebrating this morning. But we're also children of God. And we've been given new life by the same power. You might say that in each of our lives there's been a demonstration that we are the children of God through the demonstration of the same kind of power. In fact, it's important to remember that the power manifested in Jesus' resurrection isn't just something that we celebrate as having been demonstrated in the past, as important as that is. And it's crucial, because if it didn't happen in the past, it's not happening anymore. <laughs> Right. As Christians, we know that God still demonstrates this resurrection power in the lives of believers. As I've said, we first experienced this power when we were converted to the preaching of the gospel, which Paul goes on to describe to the Romans as the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, in Romans 1.16. We then experience the power of God throughout our lives as believers. In fact, Paul elsewhere prays that his fellow believers will continually experience this power in their lives. He believes that we're saved through this resurrection power and that we can daily experience this resurrection power, the same power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. So what better way to celebrate Resurrection Day, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, than to think about the power that it makes available to us. That's the best way to honor him, is to live by that resurrection power I think Paul believed that. Listen uh, to what he said, for example, in, in a, his prayer for the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. He wrote, There I also, after, therefore, rather, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead is the power by which we have been saved and by which we continue to grow as Christians. We experience this power when we were saved through the preaching of the gospel and trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we depend on this same power every single day. Without it, we are powerless. No wonder, Paul said to the Philippians in this passage, we're going to look at this morning, that it was his desire to know the power of Jesus' resurrection in his life. We see this in verse 10 where Paul says, it is his aim to know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection. But this begs the question, how? How do we continually experience Christ's resurrection power in our lives? And there's probably a lot more that can be said about that than I'm going to say today. But I do want to highlight three uh, important concepts about that from this passage today. Three ways in which we can experience this resurrection power. We can do so firstly by continuing to uh, forsake dependence upon our own righteousness. One thing that comes out clearly in this text. Anybody depending on their own righteousness knows nothing about the power of Jesus' resurrection, right? Uh, secondly, by forgetting the past. And then thirdly, by focusing on the future. And I'll, of course, uh, put some flesh on those bones as we go along here so it makes more sense. Now, first of all, our first main point there in your outline, if you've got one, I hope you do. We may experience Christ's resurrection power in our lives more fully by continually forsaking dependence upon our own righteousness. I think this principle shouts at us from verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul here speaks of wanting to gain Christ and be found in him. Now, there's a sense in which, if you know Paul's writings, he's already gained Christ, right? In fact, that's very clear from the entire context here of Philippians, but there's also a sense in which he hasn't. Why? Well, because every day is learning Christ better. Every day is coming into a deeper relationship with Christ. Every day is uh, understanding uh, and gaining wisdom from Christ and about Christ. Every day is a day of growth in Christ, right? So there's a sense in which we already have Christ, or we're not saved, right? But there's a sense in which we seek to gain Christ, as he says, to know him. There he's talking about a deeper relationship, a deeper walk with Christ. And to be found in him. Um, what, what he's saying here is, the kind of faith that I have embraced and that has led me to give up my former life and all the accolades that came along with it in some respects, right? That kind of faith is a faith that looks to the future. That kind of faith is a faith that says, I trust in God and I trust in Christ till the day I die. 
and that there's never a moment in which I must not trust in him. And if anybody else has another mindset that you can like trust him once and then you're good, that person's wrong, right? That's what Paul's making very clear. It's an ongoing thing. And so, and he says, he, he does this because he doesn't want to have a righteousness of his own. There's something for Paul, part of the growth in the Christian life for him is learning more and more to forsake my own efforts, to forsake my own endeavors, and to trust more fully in Christ. To, to forsake what I think I can do for myself and to more fully trust in what Christ alone can do for me. And so he sees the need to forsake any dependence upon his own righteousness as a continuing thing throughout his life. It's not like he had to do that once when he was saved. He's got to do that every day. And he looks forward to a future where he's going to have to constantly keep doing it. There's a continual forsaking that must go on. It's not one and done. This then is a guiding principle in Paul's life. And it should be also in the life of every believer. To the degree that we slip back into depending upon our own deeds and our trusting in the flesh, uh, that's the degree to which we don't know Christ very well. And we're missing the experience, to be sure, of Christ's resurrection power in our lives. That's no way to celebrate Resurrection Day. It's no way to live a single day as a Christian with any kind of victory. So long as we trust in ourselves, we're never going to know the power of his resurrection in our lives. We must trust in him, forsaking our own abilities, trusting in our own abilities or endeavors to be righteous. But such trust in him also has implications for how we think then about our past, which brings us to the next point. Number two, we may experience Christ's resurrection power in our lives more fully by forgetting the past. People who hang on to the past in certain unhealthy ways have a hard time trusting Christ and his power in the present. These things are interconnected. Look what he says in verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't yet achieved all that I'm seeking in Christ. If you read Romans 8, you find that that's called glorification and that only happens in the resurrection, right? He says, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul speaks in verse 13 of forgetting those things which are behind, he does not mean that he no longer thought of such things at all. Uh, that he had no remembrance of them, right? Since he's mentioned those kinds of things in this very context. That's one of the reasons we had to start reading at verse 1. He's talked all about his past, including his persecution of, of Christians. He's not forgotten it. He's actually thought it important to remember it in one sense, but he clearly wants to forget it in another So we're going to have to dig into this a little bit more. Uh, he's mentioning that he no longer allowed these things when he says forgetting those things which are behind. He obviously doesn't, obviously doesn't mean I don't want to have no remembrance of them at all. 
there are certain things in my past I'd, I'd surely like to have the power to completely forget, right? But another part of me knows that would be bad for me. And Paul knew that too. What's he mean then when he says forgetting those things which are behind? Well, we'll see that more clearly, but we know this much. He clearly means that he no longer allows these things to have power over him. A power over him that kept him from the realization of Christ's power, what he calls the power of his resurrection in his life. He doesn't allow things in his past, before he came to know Christ, to rule his present life. He doesn't put them completely out of his mind. There's value in remembering them, as we see in this passage. It's a part of his testimony that makes him an effective apologist against these false teachers even. But he doesn't count on those things like he used to. They don't matter to him like they used to. The only reason they matter at all to him now is they serve a Christ purpose now. They help him to better serve Jesus now. Or they've got no use to him at all. When we take a, look at, a closer look at the text, we'll see that when he refers to forgetting those things which are behind, that these things include both past, both past failures and past successes. So he wants us to learn to do as he has done and to forget both. I think a lot of people read this passage, forgetting those things which are behind. We must mean he wants us to forget our past sinful life. Well, he means more than that. He means all the things that made him such a great man in his former life, too. All his successes. He's forgetting those things, too, as we'll see. But first, he, he does say that we must forget our past failures, I believe. As he rehearsed his past before he was saved, uh, he included what was to him perhaps the greatest failure of his entire life. He saw this in verse 6, where he said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. When he wrote to Timothy later in his life, it was still in his mind that he had done this. And it could, he could even speak in the present tense and say, I am the chief of sinners. Paul could. Thinking of how he persecuted the church. It's, he never forgot this. But it didn't mean to him in his present life what it had once meant. It used to be an indication of his zeal for service to God. Now it's the greatest sin of his life. It's why he needed to be saved. One of the many reasons. So he clearly does still remember his past sins. He's reciting his greatest sin here. So again, his speaking about having forgotten such things must mean that he doesn't remember them in a certain way. I would suggest that he doesn't remember them in a destructive way. He remembers them rather in a constructive way, in a way that serves the purpose of Christ, that serves his ministry. It's the kind of thing he can bring up when he's talking to Timothy and, and, and remind Timothy, if he can use me, Timothy, he can surely use you. Take heart, right? There's a, there's a way you can use your past that serves the purpose of Christ. There's also a way you can remember your past that just drags you down. 
Paul doesn't remember his past that way. Matter of fact, although Paul elsewhere declared that his sin in persecuting the truth church rather made him the greatest of sinners as i've already indicated he did so only in the context of stressing the greatness of god's grace toward him so even when he talked about how have you ever met somebody that was saved from some terrible past and it's almost like they're bragging paul's not bragging here he's ashamed of this he's only mentioning it so he could brag about jesus and his grace We've all heard those people that seem like they're bragging a little bit more about the kind of sinner they once were. Implying that maybe they're a little better Christian than we are. Because what they were saved some was, from was so bad. Which is nonsense. If, if, you were, if you grew up never having known a moment where you didn't believe in Jesus, you are saved from every bit as terrible a sin problem as Paul ever was. And if, and, if, and if someone doesn't think that, they don't understand the doctrine of sin at all, right? But here's the thing. You were also saved from having committed some of those terrible sins, actually. And I say, praise God for that. Praise God that none of us had to become persecutors of the church before we were saved. Um, but that doesn't mean that we weren't as bad as sinners, Here's a couple of passages where Paul talks about his past. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10 is past sin. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. How did this function in his life when he wrote that? How did remembering his past sin serve him. It kept him humble. It was a constant reminder to him that he didn't deserve to serve Jesus even for a single second. That's not a bad way to remember your past. It's a good way. Because it reminds you how badly you need Jesus Christ and his grace what he calls the power of his resurrection, right? He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than, than they all. Yet not I. I was, me and myself, I was the persecutor guy. Not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So he held himself up as a trophy of God's grace, and that's the only reason he mentioned his past sin. Remembering your past sin so that you can glorify Christ, you can magnify Christ, and you can magnify his grace is a good thing. Remembering your sins in such a way that it drags you down is a bad thing. It didn't drag Paul down, it lifted him up. Because it helped him to see Christ even more clearly and his need for him. Again, I've alluded to it a couple of times already, but in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15, writing to Timothy, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. There's that power of Christ, right? Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, 
a persecutor, and an insolent man, even a violent man that could be taken. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now in that context, he's of course encouraging Timothy, as I said before. Um, hey Timothy, if, if Jesus can take me and use me, you know me, Timothy. <laughs> if he can use me, the chief of sinners, be encouraged there in Ephesus. You, you can be used by Jesus. He can, his power can work through you too. That's the idea. So we see the constructive use to which Paul puts the memory of his most shameful sin. He calls it in such a way as to engender a deeper sense of humility and gratitude for God's grace within himself. But then the question is, what about you and me? Have you learned to think of your past failures and sins as reminders of God's grace in your life? Do they, do they serve this constructive purpose? Or do you find that your past failures still have power over you because you can't seem to let go of the guilt, the shame, maybe? If that's your experience, then you're failing now to focus on your past only through the lens of the grace of God and of your relationship to Christ. And you need to ask God to help you to trust in his grace and forgiveness so that thinking of the past only becomes for you another opportunity to appreciate his grace more fully, to be more humble before him instead of maybe to be depressed and debilitated by it. And this is one thing we must learn to do if we're ever going to experience more fully the power of his resurrection in our lives. Show me a Christian that's bogged down with guilt about his or her past. It doesn't mean they're not a true Christian. Because true believers can struggle with this. Or else why, why does Paul use this example? <laughs> he knows we can struggle with this. Jesus knows we struggle with these things. But to the degree that we're, we're doing that, you can bet we're not trusting in Christ and his resurrection power. We're living a powerless life then. And that's not what he wants for us. He wants for us what he wants for Paul here. He wants us to experience the power of his resurrection daily. One of the ways we do that is we properly forget the past. Those past failures but also past successes, as I said, and that's our second sub-point here. We need to forget our past successes. We find this uh, lesson once again in Paul's description of his past life before he trusted in Christ as his Savior and Lord. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 8 again, and, and notice the list of the things that made him so great as a Pharisee in his previous life, right? He says, uh, for we are the circumcision who worship God and the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, but once he did have confidence in the flesh, uh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day, 
of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. And they were known as the super spiritual saints by most of the Jews, right? A good Pharisee was like the epitome of spirituality to a lot of these Jewish people. Well, Paul was one of them. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. His greatest sin was actually one of his accolades in his former life. How good a Pharisee was I? <laughs> uh, well, I outdid all the other Pharisees. They didn't have the guts to go after the church the way I did, you know. Concerning the righteousness, which is by the law blameless, like I said, he was really good at being a Pharisee. That's just a way of saying that. But what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. He counted them, he says, as rubbish. In fact, the proof of that is that he has already suffered the loss of all things for Christ. He's not just saying, I count them loss, I count them as rubbish. He's got a track record that proves it. The same Pharisees that were patting him on the back now want to kill him, right? And he suffered a lot. But we see how he lists the highlights of all his past religious accomplishments by which he had wrongly sought a righteousness of his own. Which is one of the reasons he's got to forget all that stuff. They, these things made, meant a great deal, as I said, to the religious establishment of his day. And they had once meant a great deal to him. But in, in comparison to knowing Christ as he now knew him, and the opportunity to experience Christ's resur resurrection power in his life, as he's describing it in this passage. These past accomplishments amounted to nothing more than trash to be thrown away. Meaningless. So once again, we, we see that when Paul speaks of forgetting those things which are behind, he doesn't mean that he doesn't retain any memory of them <laughs> or never thinks about them at all but rather that he doesn't view them as he used to. He views them through an entirely different lens now. His value system has been radically changed by the Lord Jesus and the things which he used to gauge his success by in his life, these things are now worthless in comparison to the knowledge of Christ. So then again, we're going to have to ask what about you and me? Right? Have you learned to think of your past successes as rubbish in comparison to what really matters, knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection? That can have a present application too. Are we seeking in our career path a kind of treasure in this world? A kind of notoriety maybe? regardless of whether or not it serves Christ's purpose in our life or not. Because to the degree that we're doing that, and by the way, preachers do it too. <laughs> in fact, they can be the worst offenders in this regard. And be filled up with pride. I remember years ago, um, I haven't always agreed with him, although he's helped me in my life at times. 
I remember years ago, John Piper took a sabbatical. He'd begun to get, his books were really selling. He was getting called to speak in all kinds of places, all kinds of conferences. He was becoming a really big deal in the evangelical community. And he took a sabbatical from his ministry as a pastor because he said he thought he was becoming too prideful. What did he need to do? He needed to throw some trash away. And he did it. Could have been reading this passage when he made that decision. I use that example because he made it a public example himself. He spoke about it openly. But also because it can happen to anyone. We can't look to what we think are successes in our life, right? That people view, people around us think to be success and forget what really matters. What really matters is knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what matters. And anything, even what are ostensibly good things that get in the way of that are trash that needs to be taken out, put on the curb, and hauled away. That's what Paul would say, I think, <laughs> were he here. We've got to learn to view all of our past successes that way. The Christian must always learn to view his life as nothing if not an opportunity to know and serve Christ better. And anything that doesn't contribute to that, is it really worth it? <laughs> better yet, if anything takes away from that, Is it really worth it? If we don't learn to view our past successes this way, they will be a stumbling block in our lives that tempt us to trust ourselves and to miss the grace of God. And they will prevent us, for sure, from experiencing more fully the resurrection power of God in our lives. So we have to learn to view our past, whether we're thinking of failures or successes, through the lens of Christ and his work to save us. But we also have to focus on the future. And that takes us to our third and final point. We may experience Christ's resurrection power in our lives more fully by focusing on the future, again, in the proper way, as we'll see. Now, there are two ways in which we, we must keep our focus on the future. First, we must realize that perfection is a future hope. Perfection is a future hope. Uh, there are some Christians that have taught a doctrine of perfectionism, uh, I think uh, John was used to call it entire sanctification, where they taught that you could reach a perfection in this life. Uh, the way I read Paul here, they were completely wrong. Uh, Paul, you know, and if Paul didn't agree with that, then neither do I, right? Because he's an apostle, and as much as he did some good there, John Wesley, John Wesley was not. <laughs> um, um, Notice how he connects perfection to our future resurrection in verses 10 through 14. He says that they may know him and the power of his resurrection now, right? But he also, there's also a future focus. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Notice that. Knowing, knowing more fully the power of Jesus' resurrection always brings with it sufferings. You'd be hard-pressed to find a passage in Paul where it talks about uh, we want to be glorified more fully, we want to, uh, uh, that comes with suffering. 
<laughs> it's always, there's always suffering is the lot of a Christian who's being a good Christian. In one way or another, there's some kind of suffering that's going to come. And he says in this way, being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained. Now everybody knows he hasn't been resurrected from the dead because he hasn't died yet. So what does he mean when he says, not, not that I have already attained? Well, what he means is, I haven't already attained that which only comes in the, in the resurrection. I can experience the resurrection power of Christ now, but what, what I'm searching for, what I'm aiming at, what my ultimate goal is, comes only with the actual resurrection itself in the future. Right? That's what he means. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected. Romans 8 calls that being glorified. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He's repeating the point. It's very important that he does this because he's an apostle with a tremendous reputation for holiness, conviction, power in preaching and in ministry, a tremendous uh, reputation for standing as a stalwart for the truth for being unbending in his commitment to Christ and, in, and to the Christian faith. And there's the possibility that the people around him in Philippi and elsewhere will put him on some kind of a pedestal. Paul does not want that to happen. Partly because he's a humble, humble guy, right? But partly because it would be a lie. It's not true. And so he makes it very clear, not that I have already attained. i got to beat that into you guys here. Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected. But I press on, he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. What I'm aiming for comes in the future. It comes in the resurrection. It comes ahead. Perfection is what he calls it here. The attaining of perfection. And it's the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as he describes it. So he clearly sees perfection as something that awaits the future. It's the goal that keeps him dependent on Christ's resurrection power now. He doesn't allow his past failures or successes to get in the way of his pursuit of experiencing this power. And he doesn't let any degree of righteousness in Christ that he's attained, any degree of holiness, any degree of maturity that he's already attained, get in the way, either. Recognizing that perfection comes in the future, it is not now. This brings us to our next point. We must keep our future hope in mind to make progress in the present. I think this is the emphasis of the last two verses under consideration this morning, verse 15 and 16. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature. Okay. So, we may not attain perfection in this life, but there is a level of maturity we can get as Christians. There are more and less mature Christians. There are some Christians we would think of as mature Christians, and some people uh, Christians we would think of as immature Christians, right? Uh, right. But no perfect Christians. More or less mature, but no perfect Christians. And so he says, 
What does a mature Christian think like? As many of us as are mature have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. What mind? The mind he's just described. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what a mature Christian mindset is. I seek to know Christ and the power of his resurrection every single day. I don't let past failures and successes hinder me. I'll only remember those things and recall them in a way that will help that purpose, that will magnify Christ, that will make me more like Christ, that will serve Christ in my life and his purposes in my life. And I look to the future recognizing that what I'm seeking never happens in this life. I won't find perfection in this life. That comes in the resurrection. A mature Christian will think like this. This is the mindset of a a mature Christian. That's what Paul is saying. And And if you don't have this mindset, I'm confident that God will reveal it to you. Well, in what way? Well, in part, through contemplating what he's been saying in this passage, God will reveal it to you. Maybe he's revealed it to some of us this morning. Wow, I was not very mature in my thinking. I have let my past rule me in ways I should not. Or, I've been thinking I'm more mature than I am. Boy, I've got a long way to go. If, If Paul could say this, Man, I've got a little bit too big-headed here. Maybe it was that. In this group of people, I doubt it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see people like that around me. But it can happen. if it could happen to Paul or Peter or someone like that, it could happen to us. So a mature, a mature Christian are those who don't think they've already attained. They know better. They, they've already attained some degree now of Christ-likeness that will be theirs perfectly only later in the resurrection. So this teaches us that uh, what we should look for in this life isn't perfection, but progress toward it. If, If Paul were going to assess our spiritual health here, if he were here today, and he were going to talk individually to each one of us and assess as an apostle of Jesus Christ our spiritual health, he wouldn't be looking for perfection. He'd be looking for progress. That's what he'd be looking for. Sometimes we look at the perfect, the, the perfect that we're, we're striving for, and when we don't see it in our lives, we get so discouraged that we've, we forget completely any progress that's been made. And what happens when we do that? when we can't see the actual progress that's being made. We're not thanking God for it if we won't even acknowledge it. Think of how sinful it is to refuse to see what the Spirit has actually done in our lives and to thank God for it and His grace being bestowed upon us for it because all we can think about is how fall short we how much we fall short of the perfection that will one day be ours. Or all we can think about is my past failures or my past successes. 
and we can't see clearly right now. And we miss everything the Holy Spirit is doing right now. We don't worship Him for it. We don't praise Him for it. We don't thank Him for it. That's not just a lack of maturity. That's really sinful. Look at one of the worst sins in Romans 1. They didn't acknowledge God, nor were they thankful. I say on Resurrection Day, let's take a, a resurrection power in my life test. How much do I really appreciate Jesus' resurrection? Does it show in my life? We should be experiencing his power in our lives. I think John spoke in a similar way in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, when he said this. He, he spoke of the purifying effect looking toward our future hope can have on us. If we do it properly, right? Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, speaking of Christ, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You want more purity in your life? Look to Jesus, he says. Look to Jesus. Now, he says, we know one day we'll be, we will be, pure, be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, some people take this passage to mean, to mean this. When we see him, we'll become like him. I think what, what John is saying is we know we'll have to have been made like him in order to see him as he is. We will never be able to see Jesus as he is without glorified eyes without having been purified. And this is glorification, Paul would call it, that he's talking about. So again, I ask, what about us? Have we learned, you and I, to keep our future hope in Christ continually before us? As Paul was saying, he's constantly looking to the future, and it keeps him from resting on anything he has already attained and thinking he's gotten further than he has. But he doesn't let it diminish how far he's gotten. Either. He praises God for that. He praises Christ for that. Do you remind yourself every day that God isn't finished with you yet? Or do you get discouraged by your failures and lose, lose your focus on Jesus? So here's the thing about me and my failures. They aren't just my past life before I came to know Christ. They're like every day since too. There's no day I don't fail in some way. Yesterday I failed. I got to forget that past just like I forget the past before I came to know Jesus. If like me, you struggle in this way at times, then you need to learn as I do to view your present life in light of God's future promises. You need to remember that Paul, if he were here, I honestly believe this about Emmanuel. He would have the same confidence about everyone in this room that he had about the Philippian believers, about whom he said in chapter 1, verse 6, 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It will happen. And so don't look at yourself and say, oh, it hasn't happened already. I should just give up. It hasn't happened already. No, Paul says, a mature Christian says, of course it hasn't happened already. <laughs> it doesn't happen until the resurrection. question is, is something happening? <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is happening. That's why you're here today. If nothing were happening, you wouldn't be here. Something's happening. So I'll conclude by saying that my hope for those of you who have not yet come to know Christ as Savior and Lord is that you will do so today. Because I don't think you're here by accident. I think God has providentially put you here where you could hear the gospel. Because he wants to do for you what he's done for all of us. He wants to open your eyes and give you faith, repentance, and salvation through faith in Christ. My hope for everyone here who already knows Christ is that we'll celebrate his resurrection today better, maybe, than the past. By resolving to trust in him more fully so that we might experience the power of his resurrection as he desires that we should. He, he doesn't want us to just remember what a glorious thing it was that he rose from the dead, as important as it is. He wants us to remember what it means to each one of us in our daily lives, because that's why he did it. He rose from the dead so that today, you and I can experience the same power by which he rose from the dead in our lives. That's the whole point. So let's go out of here today saying, I want that resurrection power in my life. How do I get it? Prayer, faith, and a right understanding that Paul has revealed to us. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's my prayer that I've done a good job of drawing out of this passage what is really there uh, to help us to think better about how important the resurrection is. And it's important in so many ways, and we've only touched on some of them today. We, we want to honor Christ today and every day. We want every day to be a resurrection day. Every day to be a celebration of Christ's resurrection in our lives through the experience of his resurrection power by which we learn to trust him more fully and there are some in this room that feel like the man who once said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And they feel that their faith is so weak that they're barely hanging on to Jesus by their fingernails. But they're hanging on. And the reason they're hanging on is because they're experiencing the resurrection power of Christ in their lives. Or they wouldn't be hanging on at all. Help them to see that, Lord, and to walk out of here encouraged that you are keeping them as you promised. You are seeing them through. And they are experiencing your power in their lives. I want people to leave here today encouraged by the power of Jesus. 
Help us to leave here encouraged, I pray. Strengthened for the fight ahead of us this week. We'll give you all the glory for it. In the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention.